So 1 Samuel 18, the antidote to envy. I'm just gonna jump right in here. So let me, let me start with a quote by uh, the inimitable Dorothy Sayers. She was a, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and a friend. In her address, um, The Other Six Deadly Sins, she gave it at Caxton Hall, Westminster in 1941. This is her opening. She says, perhaps the bitterest commentary on the way in which Christian doctrine has been taught in the last few centuries is the fact that to the majority of people, the word immorality has come to mean one thing and one thing only. And of course, we know what she's talking about. She doesn't mention it here, but lust. A man may be greedy and selfish, spiteful, cruel, jealous, and unjust, violent and brutal, grasping, unscrupulous, and a liar, stubborn and arrogant, stupid, morose, and dead to every noble instinct. And still, we are ready to say of him that he is not an immoral man. I am reminded of a young man who once said to me with perfect simplicity, I did not know there were seven deadly sins. Please tell me the names of the other six. So that's where she gets her essay from. And she's referring to the fact that there are seven deadly sins. They started as Rankin Wilborn, from whom I take quite a bit of this, an embarrassing amount of this sermon. He has a great sermon on envy. Um, there were eight deadly thoughts 1,700 years ago when the early church began to talk about them. And um, then they became vainglory and sadness got meshed into, got, got melded, fused into envy. So envy is one of the seven deadly, deadly sins that's taken very seriously. All sins are deadly, as we know. They all separate us from the holy and living God, and yet there are seven that are extremely poisonous. And so, but we really just think of, of, of one, lust. And so we've just, we've, we've forgotten about the other six. Well, envy is one of those seven. Tim Keller, whom I rarely mention in sermons, I know you're, you're saying, why are you mentioning Tim Keller? He, uh, he preached a great series on the seven deadly sins. And he said, you know, I've counseled a lot of people. He's probably counseled thousands of people. And he said, never to my memory have I ever have, had someone sit down and say, you know, Tim, I have a problem with envy. Never has somebody self-diagnosed like that. Never. Um, he said, I've gotten a lot of sermon advice, way too much. But never has anyone said to me, you know, you, you should really preach on envy. Um, his wife, Kathy, says, uh, said when he was preparing the, the sermon series on the seven deadly sins, she says, you'll have your lowest attended Sunday when you preach on envy. Why all these things? Because nobody thinks they have a problem with envy. But let me tell you, I hope that I can convince you otherwise by the end of this, uh, by the end of point one, really. Um, it, it's, we all have, we all have, and I, dare I say, a s- serious problem with envy. It's exacerbated more than ever in history by our, by our culture. Not just the Bible and the ancient and the medieval church, but Aristotle and almost all the ancient uh, thinkers say, say that envy is one of the things that destroys us and our world and makes it a miserable place. So three points this morning. The jealous king, an unthinkable gesture, and finally, the antidote to envy. So the jealous king. Let me, let me start with the jealous king. It's obviously Saul here in this text. It's apparent. It's clear. Saul uh, is driven by jealousy or envy. Um, Keller says Saul's life is being destroyed by envy or jealousy. So before I go any farther, let me, let me make a distinction. I'm using the words jealousy and envy almost interchangeably. And you might think, wait a minute, doesn't God call himself jealous in the Bible? 
And, and, and that's true, he does, when he, in, in a variety of places, but um, notably when he gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, after he's just brought his people out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, and delivered them, he gives them rules to live by. He makes them a people. He's giving them rules to live by for their peace and their well-being. And he starts off by saying, I am a jealous God. I don't want you to have any other gods before me. And he know, he's doing that out of love because he knows that if we do have any other gods before God, we'll be, we'll be miserable because we're made for God. So again, it's like if, we, if we're loving God first and foremost, it's like we're putting gas in the engine. But if we're loving anything else in God's place, it's like putting, I say this a lot, Coke or milk in a car. It's just not going to work right. And so out of love, God says, I'm a jealous God. Uh, and so it's, it's different from envy, and I'll explain in just a second how, um, but for now, know that I might use the terms interchangeably. I'm really speaking not of that which God is, a jealous lover and husband, rightly seeking the welfare of his own, but of envy, of, of wanting what other people have, regardless of what we have, and I'll get into that. So envy, um, what it is, why it's painful and poisonous. Let's, let's dig in a little bit. So, so what it is, what it is. Um, Thomas Aquinas, we're going medieval here, 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, one of the great doctors of the church, he said, envy is the sadness, get this, it's a good note-taking Sunday if you take notes, envy is the sadness at goods possessed by another. It's the sadness at goods possessed by another. Again, Rankin Wilborn, he's a pastor at Pacific Crossroads out in LA, he says, the particular sadness that comes from comparing your life with others. It's the feeling, he says, that pops when you check your Instagram feed. Social media is the greenhouse of envy or the green-eyed monster, which is one of the many nicknames of envy. Um, so to break it down a little bit, the difference between jealousy and envy, jealousy wants the good of the object of its jealousy. That's why God is a jealous God. He seeks our good and he knows that he's jealous for our affection because he knows that if we give our first love to anything else, we're dead in the water. We're not gonna work right. We're going to crumble from within and make everything around us miserable. So it seeks the good of the object of its jealousy. Envy is the opposite. Envy wants the harm of the object of its jealousy. It wants its object dead or removed, eviscerated, okay? Now Saul, he felt threatened by anyone who threatened his position. We see that all over this text, but in 1 Samuel 18, 7 and verse 7, he hears a song about David and he says, but to me, that David, they're ascribing 10,000s, but to me, but to me, that's his obsession himself, um, only thousands. He can't enjoy that he has the kingship, that he has all that's attendant to the kingship, all, that God has just poured out his blessing on him because David is here. He's comparing he can enjoy what he has. Um, verse eight, again, what is Saul doing? It's his fatal flaw. He's listening to what the people say. And as Jordan said this morning at our communion roundtable, he said, what the people are saying in their song isn't even necessarily right. I mean, David has just killed Goliath, and they're already saying, the women are coming out in the streets saying, David has killed 10,000s. It's a strange text. But they're probably exaggerating. They're just really happy. And Paul, I mean, excuse me, Saul He's, instead of being directed by God's word and what God has given to him and letting that be his compass and focus, he's focused on what others are saying, his perception even of what they're saying. And when we do that, perception is a cruel taskmaster. Letting our lives be guided by listening to what others think or what we perceive they think about us, it's like we just become a weather vane, just tossed to and fro like a ship on the turbulent ocean. 
It's a disaster. It's a wholly unstable, unrooted, dangerous way to live. We have a choice. It's really a binary choice. Will we live direct with our eyes focused on God and his word as he's revealed himself to us that shoots us to Jesus Christ and what all that Christ tells us about how much God loves us and cares for us? Or, so will we be people of God's word, listening to what he says about us, our true condition in sin, how he made us perfect, we fell, we don't deserve anything but condemnation, but Christ came and took that for us, or will we be directed by man's word? It's really, and none of us get it right all the time, even if we are focused on God's word, but that, those are the two paths. And we see Paul take the other path. Why, okay, why is envy so painful? So that's a bit of what it is. Why is it so painful? In one sense, let me just give one example. It's, it's a, a peculiar and a particular example. Envy is the only of the seven deadly sins to be bitter from the start. Okay, every other of the six, all the other six, they, they, there's some sweetness to them. So anger Man, that can be so sweet to just be furious at someone that righteous. You perceive it as righteous. It's usually not. Don't give yourself a pass. Anger. Um, Lust, that's easy. Tons of sweetness there at first. Eventually, they all burn you down. But of the other six, there's sweet fruit at first, not with envy. With envy envy from the get-go, it's poison and it's bitter and it yields no joy. So that's that's why it's so painful. That's its particular poison. Let me talk a little bit more a lot more about, about the poison of envy. A few things that it does. Envy turns your goods into bads. So again, Saul, who's he envious about? Who's he hating? Who's he hurling spears at? Who's he trying to kill? Who's he trying to eviscerate? Who's he trying to wipe off the face of the planet? We just preached on it last week, didn't we? The guy that's coming in who's just done what Saul should have done, he's fought for Israel and in Saul's place, and he has freed, he set Israel free from the Philistines, He's doing Saul's bidding. He's playing the harp when Saul gets angry and when God sends an evil spirit. And by the way, this isn't the point of the sermon, but I just pray that God, if you want me to mention this, because somebody's focused on how can God send an evil spirit, just let me, let me quell your unease. If God, it actually should be a comforting thought. The fact, if God isn't in control of it, that evil, it does not come from God, but if God is not in control of evil spirits to send them where he will to do his bidding, we're all in trouble. If they can do what they want irregardless, okay, regardless of what God says, then, then God doesn't have control over them, and that's a, that's a bad deal, okay? So, so God, yes, he sends an evil spirit, and it plagues Saul. Point being, David is the very man that's for Saul, that's fighting these battles for Saul, that is for Saul in every single way, and yet Saul's trying to pin him to the wall. So envy turns our goods into bads. Um, Dwight Edwards, he's a teacher here in town, actually, a descendant of Jonathan Edwards. He, has, he quotes Oswald Sanders saying that comparison, so what is Saul doing? He's comparing himself to David. Comparison is the thief of joy. He refers to it elsewhere as the sideways glance. It's the, you, you take your focus off of what's right in front of you, what God has brought down into your life, and you move it to the side to look at what, what's going on in the person next to you. Um, it, it steals joy by giving you either discouragement, man, they're doing so much better than I am, they have so much more than I do, or arrogance. Those are the two paths of envy. Hey, I'm way better than that person, yay me. Either way, it's a disaster. Arrogance probably even worse, but they're both bad. In, in any case, joy is gone, it's eviscerated. Um, it's the sideways glance, so 
Dwight Edwards goes on, are you enjoying God's material benefits and blessings in your life? Just look sideways. You're not as well off as you thought. There's always gonna be someone with more. Are you grateful for your spouse? Just look sideways. Maybe you missed out. Do you feel fulfilled in your job? Hang on. Just look sideways. Maybe you've settled for something beneath your potential. Again, you're content until you look sideways, until the sideways glance, the green-eyed monster. It's the opposite of, of what Voltaire said, and I think I've quoted this before, but he says at the end of his book, Candide, tend your garden. Focus on what's right in front of you, your little patch of life that God has given you. He probably wouldn't have followed that with what God has given you, but he says, tend your garden. That's really good advice. Envy does the opposite. It's looking in the other person's gardens, totally missing what's right in front of yours, and it will ruin your garden in the process. Uh, Rankin Wilborn says, hey, the grass is always brown. Not the grass is greener. It's always brown. Trust me. It looks green, but it's brown over there too. Just focus on you. Um, Paul says to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. This is the opposite of that. In the film Amadeus, which it's, it won in 1984, I believe it won eight Academy Awards, best picture among them. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's a great movie. It's on the life of uh, Mozart. And it features really a man that actually won best picture. He doesn't play Mozart. He plays Mozart's, uh, I don't know what nemesis is the word, but he's a jealous, he's an envious musician. And he hates Mozart because Mozart is so much more talented. And he doesn't think that Mozart deserves what Mozart's getting. And so he, Salieri, his name's uh, Antonin, I believe. Salieri is the character that he plays, a real uh, Italian composer. He's the court composer for the Emperor of Austria in the movie. He has this great position. He has everything. He has a great life until Mozart comes in the scene. He loses nothing when Mozart comes, but Salieri's jealousy drives him to murder, essentially, and it ruins his life. Takes a good of his, and it just makes it bad. You know, I have struggled. I struggle with envy ever since Keller's sermon <laughs> series long ago, over a decade ago that I listened to it. I realized I struggle with envy. We all do. Uh, but this week in particular, and God will do this, right? As I'm preaching, he'll put whatever I'm preaching on on my heart in a particular way. It's, it's scary when you're preaching on the seven deadly sins. Okay, no pastor is exempt from them. Um, it's why I preach Christ. It's why we're here. We need, we need, we are sinners and we need the sinless Savior who became sin for us. We need Jesus. I have struggled with envy, friends, this week a lot. Let me just say that, a lot. Um, Envy always hits close to home. So what I struggle, I don't struggle with, I don't envy Warren Buffett. I don't envy J.J. Watt. I don't envy the Queen of England. I envy preachers that are better than I am. I envy church planners who have more people in their church. I'm totally content, guys. I mean, okay, totally content's a stretch. I fight to be, to, I, I fight to be content, and I'm content, and everything's fine, and I love y'all, and look at what God's doing, and then I see someone who's talking to me about his church, and all of a sudden, the green-eyed monster comes out, and he just starts gnawing at my, the back of my, my hamstring, you know, but he just won't let go. I don't know why I said hamstring. I don't know what he's gnawing at, but he's gnawing at me. Um, man, it's always in your sphere, isn't it? We don't envy everyone. Again, only those in our field. So you probably don't envy Tom Hanks. We might have some aspiring actors or actresses here. I know Taylor's not here, but she's, but she probably even then doesn't envy Hanks. He's just, he's in the stratosphere. Again, J.J. Watt, Warren Buffett, when I say that, 
a lot of you guys, you make money in one form or another for a living. You manage it. You move it around. You put it in stocks. You tell people what stocks to buy. So maybe there's a sense in which you do. He's so far up above, he's probably safe. But if you're in his sphere, you might envy him a little bit. Um, I certainly don't. But it's those that are in our sphere that we want to surpass, okay, that have more than we do, that are doing better than we are. And if you want to know what you envy, what you struggle with, look, um, look to those you envy to find where you're finding your self-worth. Whom do I, this is a diagnostic time, friends. Ask the Lord. Holy Spirit, show me. He will. A lot of times, that's a great way to do it. If you don't know the answer, just ask the Holy Spirit. He knows everything. He will show you. Holy Spirit, what, whom am I envying? And that's a window into what I'm worshiping and where I'm finding my self-worth, and that's false. That is false. For me, it's preaching, the intelligence. Um, okay, so... Is it any wonder, I mentioned this earlier, that depression is so widespread in the wealthiest nation, I want to say in the history of the planet, but on, in the world, it's because so much of our society is based on comparison. The Atlantic Monthly uh, had an article this week on, um, because of, uh, there's social pressure to be, the social pressure to be perfect, perfectionism is up by 30%, okay, from former years. Why? Because, again, we're so much more aware in our day of what's going on in the lives of other people. And so much, because of media, right? And, but so much of that, here's the kicker. First of all, that's probably unhealthy right there. But secondly, it's two-dimensional what we're seeing. It's what people want us to see. And our lives are three-dimensional, right? So that's not fair. That's no fair. I'm three-dimensional. All this stuff going on and my kids pooping over here on the floor and and this is happening, and I'm being mean to my wife, and I'm trying to pay my bills, but I don't have enough money. But the two-dimensional glossy photo looks fantastic every time. And a lot of times in our culture, it's the exceptional folks that rise to the top, so we're looking at them. Not real. But it sets us up to compare, and it makes us miserable. So depression's up. Uh, Victor Hugo wrote Les Mis, um, a book I'll probably never read because it's over 1,000 pages long, but it's a great movie. <laughs> you should check it out sometime, Hugh Jackman whom my Scottish friend called Hugh Actor. Uh, he's great in that. So lame is, Victor Hugo, he told a tale and he said, um, there was someone that said to a person, you can have anything, a genie sort of, right? You can have anything you want, but the person uh, with you will get double what you get. And the answer, uh, the answer was, envy says, make me blind in one eye. Okay, maybe you didn't get that. The, the envy says to that, you can have anything you want. Just poke one of my eyes out. Because if the other person with me gets double, they're going blind. So I don't care about what I have just so long as they're miserable, okay? Envy is the hole in the bucket, um, Rankin Wilborn says. It's the hole in the bucket or the hole in the donut, right? The donut's great. Envy looks at the hole in the donut. It's a nothing. It's a non-entity. It's, it's worse than something, okay? Um, the Germans have a word for this uh, sort of thing, wishing ill on someone and getting satisfaction out of it. It's called Schadenfreude, okay? Um, Schadenfreude, probably pronouncing it wrong. Glee, glee in others' misfortune. The tabloids exploit this Schadenfreude in us as we walk to check out, okay? There are all these things that are going wrong with these happy, shiny people, and their lives are miserable, and that makes me feel just a little bit better, okay? Um, whether I have enough is irrelevant. Saul had enough. Um, that person has more, and that is unacceptable. 
to the envious person. So again, jealousy wants the good of its object. Envy wants their destruction. Envy wants their destruction. Again, my, my friend in Scotland, he says, don't compare your insides with other people's outsides. But that's what we do, right? That's what we do, and that's what media exacerbates. Again, um, Rankin Wilborn, the grass is always brown. The grass is always brown. So stop it. Okay, let me talk just briefly about a few more just ills of envy, and then we're going to move to much shorter, I promise, point two and three, okay? I'm just trying to blow you away with this envy gun so that we're all convicted together of the fact that we have a problem with envy, and it's a problem, okay? It'll make you crazy. Sin will make you crazy, period, but envy especially. Saul is trying to slay, again, the same man who's going out and serving him and fighting battles for him and playing the harp for him to calm him. So it'll make you crazy. Um, it will make you lose also what you're desperately grasping. So out of envy producing fear, Saul moves David out of his court and puts him in charge of a 1,000 in verse 13. And it's there that David gains more fame and more trust, and it sets him more up to take the kingship, and it, and it takes the kingship more out of Saul's hands, okay? This is what envy does. It leads to the loss of the things that we most are trying to grab hold of. Our friend, one of our dear friends, she craved, almost more than anything, she craved the esteem of others, which led to an affair, which led to the loss of the esteem of almost everyone around her. You lose what you're trying to grab onto with envy. It's a, it's a lose, it's, a, it's, it's worse than a zero-sum game, okay? Othello, some of us have read it, we've all heard about it, Shakespeare play. Poor Othello, poor Desdemona. Uh, he loves his wife, Desdemona, um, but he ends up killing this wife that he loves all because of envy. Um, it's what envy does. It burns down our home around us, and we're the ones lighting, lighting the match. It's also a gateway to sin. You know, you have gateway drugs. You have a gateway sin. Envy is a gateway sin. All sins are, really, you know. Um, it leads to fear. We see this in this text. Saul's envy leads to cowardice and fear. We see it in verse 13, we see it in verse 15, it kind of peppers the passage. Um, his fear just transfers from Goliath in chapter 17, which we just preached last week. His fear transfers from Goliath, he's afraid with the people. I think it's verse 25 of chapter 17. He's afraid with the people of Goliath because he doesn't have his eyes fixed on God. And then and now it, his fear transfers. It transfers to David, he's afraid of David. Sin doesn't... Um, Sins don't just leave us on their own. They multiply and they snowball until they're excised with the power of Jesus Christ and with fixing our eyes on another word, not the word of the people, okay? Um, in verse 11, what does Saul do? He takes a spear and he hurls it at David. Okay. He, David's playing the harp and Saul just inanely, because of jealousy, which makes you crazy, he gets a spear and chunks it at David and tries to pin him to wall, misses and the next verse says, and Saul feared David. Wait, what? I thought when you chunk a spear at someone, the person that's throwing the spear at you, you're supposed to fear them, because that's scary. But no, it says, Saul's the one trying to kill David, and David, not afraid of Saul, no, the other way around, Saul's afraid of David. He's afraid of David. Um, envy fills us with fear. It's driven by fear. 
as well as producing fear. The fear that God is, here it is, guys, and I'll get much more into this at our close. It's the fear that God is holding out on me. He doesn't want my best, and he's not trustworthy. It forgets God. It forgets God as Father, like we sang. It forgets all that God has given to us in Christ. God's not gonna provide for me. I gotta, I gotta look out for number one. Envy leads to anger. Verse eight, Saul grew very angry. That same phrase in the Hebrew is in Genesis chapter four, okay? Cain grew very angry. Same two Hebrew words with the name in the middle being different, okay? Grew angry, Cain, grew angry, Saul. And Cain ended up killing his brother, Abel, didn't he? Um, He was jealous of him, he was angry toward him, and he ended up killing him. Um, A couple points there. This is bigger than Saul just having a localized problem. This is an original sin issue. This is a fall in the garden issue. It's an issue that we all share. And it's a reminder that the cure for envy isn't just us muscling up and trying harder. It comes from the second Adam who came and buried envy and crucified it on the cross, which I will get to more, right? And rose free from envy with a new life that we have access by faith alone. Okay, so it's a deep and incurable wound that only the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can cure. And also it leads to murder. Jealousy, which leads to anger, which leads to murder. It's serious, serious stuff. It ruined paradise. It ruined a perfect world where there was, I mean, they had everything they needed and they became envious of God, as it were. He's holding out on us. And if it ruined paradise, don't you think it can ruin your life? Don't think you're immune from it. Ask God. Where am I being envious, okay? Wicked, wicked stuff. It blinds us to what we have, as I've talked about. Um, so much of our happiness in life comes from wanting things God has not given, which causes us to take for granted things that he already has. So we miss our garden while looking over at the brown grass of somebody else's garden. It looks green, but once you get into it, it's gonna be brown. It steals joy, it mires us in self-pity. It's a fool's game, and no one's even watching, all right? The lie is, acquire what you envy and then you'll be happy. It's that carrot and stick thing. If you're not content with your story today, nothing that's added to you will make you happy or content. Happiness will never come through acquiring the thing that you crave. The more that we have, here's the thing, and then we're moving on to point two. The more that we have, the more that we're tempted to want to have if we're focused, if we're driven by envy. The more we're liable to envy. Um, This is what those who have a lot tend to do. We tend to envy. The poor and the middle class are not exempt. They can envy too. But the rich, and we're all, most of us are in that because we're Americans in a fairly well-off part of town. I mean, we are, in, in the history of the world, we are the wealthy, okay? We are more prone. We might not envy. We might have done battle there and let the Lord conquer that, and it's a daily process. But we are more prone to be envious and probably more rife with it than we realize. Rankin Wilborn again, he says in the novel Colette, what a wonderful life I've had. This is a character in the novel. What a wonderful life I've had. I only wish I'd realized it sooner. Salieri, he's dissatisfied with his two talents. He wanted five. Couldn't enjoy his two. Saul, how about you? If you're clinging to stuff, if you're driven and riven by envy, I have a simple question for you, friend. How is that working out for you? Is it giving you the satisfaction you want in life? Is it making you happy? And of course, the answer is no, hell no. 
okay? From second one, it yields no pleasure. It's just bitter fruit. So the text, this text shows us a better way. Now, I'm kind of pulling a juke on you. Uh, This text that we just read does not show us a better way, but I skipped on purpose the first five verses that start the chapter. So if you have a Bible, and you don't have to look down, but let me just walk you through it briefly. An unthinkable gesture, point two. So we looked at the jealous king. Now briefly, an unthinkable gesture. It's a chapter of contrasts. This chapter, it contrasts what we've looked at, contrasts who and whom? Saul and David. But it also, it begins by contrasting Saul's son, Jonathan, with what follows, Saul. Chapter of contrasts. Um, What does Jonathan do here? In verse one, in contrast to his father, he sees David coming off the field of battle and it says that Jonathan loved David. Friends, the opposite of what we see coming in Saul of Envy is not contentment, but more fundamentally even than that, it's love. Contentment is focused on you. Yes, God and you, but you. Love wants good for another, for the other person. Love cancels envy and it gives birth to gratitude and contentment. Y'all, look at this unthinkable gesture. Look at what Jonathan does here. Let me just unpack it briefly for you. He gives his, he sees David, he loves him, his soul is knit to him, and he makes a covenant with him, it says, because of his love for him, and he gives him his cloak or robe. uh, Robert Alter says it's the very piece of, of clothing that Samuel associated with the kingship. This is not just him giving a shirt off his back. This is him saying, me king, me as oldest son of Saul in line to be king. Now I am conferring that on you, David, shepherd boy, willingly, okay? He gives him his armor, his belt, all his battle garb, and then finally, his weapons, his bow and his sword. I think Keller at some point talks on this, but either way, it's very clear. What he's saying is, it's not just, he even goes beyond saying, I'm in line to be king, but I'm giving that to you. He even puts himself at David's mercy, hands his sword, his weapons with which you kill people, right? His sword uh, to David and essentially kneels and lowers his head and says, do with me what you will. I am your servant, and if you want to strike me down, you now can with my sword. I'm defenseless before you. So he lets go of what is, in a sense, by rights his and gets back in return all these manifold blessings. As he chooses the opposite of envy, love, he gets back, not the kingship, but he gets back being in the inner circle of David. His family for generations is taken care of by David. There's a friendship that forms that we still talk about today, the David and Jonathan friendship. It's one of the most amazing friendships we've ever seen in literature. And we still, it's the model of friendship. And we still, oh, David, when Jonathan dies, says, your love to me was better than the love of a woman. Strong even stronger perhaps than the proverbial, some friends are stick closer than a brother. This is the kind of friendship we see here. And it comes through relinquishing rather than grasping what is his by rights. Saul, by contrast, what? Does the exact opposite by trying to grab onto what is his. And looking askance at David, he loses everything. And he ends up falling on his own sword, loses his kingship, loses his life, commits suicide on Mount Gilboa. Remember in Israel, there's so many, there's so many things happening everywhere. You can't see it all. And we were passing, we're on the highway, and there's like, Mount Gilboa on your left. Uh, that's where Saul fell on his sword and committed suicide. And we just keep driving. I'm like, no, 
You know, I mean, that's where he did it, right there. That's how his life ended, an unthinkable gesture. But Jonathan gives us, finally, point three, the only antidote. He gives us a window into a greater king who had much more, who was privy to much more, and who let go of much more at much greater cost to himself, the greater Jonathan, um, Jesus Christ. He sat at the helm of heaven, shared the throne with God Almighty, spoke and the worlds were created. He didn't have to come down here and save any of us. He didn't have to enter our misery. He didn't have to take it upon himself, but he chose to. He let go of all of his regnal rights, all of his divine rights, all of his kingly rights, and came down here and was with us and took our pain and our sin upon himself and into himself and lived a life of poverty and rejection by the ones that he created. And in letting go of all that, he lifts us up by faith to where he is. And he clothes us with his kingly rights. He makes us sons of his father. In a sense on the cross, I say it with trembling, but there's a sense in which he was de-sunned on the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Because if he hadn't have been de-sunned, we would have been to bring us in. He, he went out to a far country to grab us, profligate, prodigal sons and daughters, to bring us back to the heart of God, a great cost to himself. So Jonathan gives us this picture of Jesus who Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, let those two words sink into your heart. Why did he do it? For your sake. Do you want security? Do you want to be free from envy? Can you trust God? Can you trust that even if you have a lot or a little, that he has given you everything you need and even his very self? How can you trust God? Because for your sake, for your sake, he gave his son, he gave himself. For your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, the great exchange, might become rich. John Calvin says this in his Institutes. This is the wonderful exchange which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us, that becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. That by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. That by taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. That by accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. That by receiving our poverty unto himself, and can I say into himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. That taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Dwight Edwards again beckons us to exchange the sideways look that steals joy, that eviscerates joy, that leads to despondency or pride for the upward look. The look to God and his perfections who came down and became poor for us and who was lifted up not in glory but on a cross, manifesting his glory and his power in a way we never could have imagined even though the scriptures foretold it. Trust, turn your eyes upon Jesus, the, the, the hymn by Helen Lamel. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Do you want the antidote to envy? 
Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. They will lose their luster, friend, and they will find their place, because he will give you what you need. And eventually, all things. This life is not as good as it, is not as good as it gets, friends. Let eternity and the new heavens and new earth, which he will bring through his own merit, let eternity be the Polaris that guides you. Heaven is coming down. This is not as good as it gets. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Um, the roots of envy, as I close, where does it come from? As I've alluded to and touched on briefly, it comes from the garden. It comes from the garden. It's not just a fleeting sin, okay? It's got its roots in what we were born into in the original fall of our parents. Perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4.18. Perfect love casts out fear. Why do we envy? Let me tell you again, we envy in a word because of fear. We are afraid God is holding out on us. It's the garden fear of Genesis 3. We are afraid God does not have our best interest in mind. Adam and Eve, uh, Satan to Adam and Eve, the serpent. God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree he has forbidden you to eat from, what? You'll be like him, and he doesn't want that. He is holding out on you. So we've got to go look out for number one and grab what's best for us because God's not going to do that. He does not have my best interest in mind. But don't you see, friend, that Christ is our guarantee and the cross is our constant reminder that God has gone and will go to ultimate lengths for our best interest. What more can he give us? What more can he give us than his own son? What more can he, and if he knew that money we're gonna make a little more money, we're gonna make us happy and fulfill us, or, or, or that person over there, or that job, or whatever it is, he would surely give it to us. He is a father who can be trusted because he has given us his own son, and Isaiah 53 was pleased to crush his son, was pleased to crush him, not because he's a sadist, but because he saw what it would bring and it was the only way to win us back. If he has given his own son and was pleased to do it, Jesus was pleased to die for you and to live for you and to rise for you, then surely that he will give us everything we need now and then and then when he comes again. Psalm 23, New Living Translation, it always gets me. Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Trust that he is enough and that what he has given is enough for now. And piano, baby grand piano, you have not because you ask not. You have a father who's given you all things. Ask him. He may give it. He may not. But he'll redirect your heart in the process if he's not going to give it to you. And what he wants is relationship. That's why he's jealous, because he's jealous for your love, because he made you for himself. It's not a list of rules. It's not why we're here. No. It's not why he came. When we get this, friends, envy dissipates. It dissipates. I won't say it's fully, I will not say it's fully. We were gonna, we're gonna have to fight to live in that reality and to abide in Christ and to remember him and to fix our eyes on the word of God, which is Christ, till the day we die to fight this thing. But Christ has won for us. Let us hide in him. It's the only antidote to envy. Let me close with the words from this song, Psalm 73. It's a, it's a psalm of a crisis of faith where a man, he sees the world and everything it has and he sees his neighbor and how much they're prospering and he's getting just rocked by God and he starts off bitter and he says this, 
Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, let me tell you my story. Let me open up a little bit. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was, what, envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Man, they're wicked, and they are getting everything, those fat cats, and I am every day just about to die, and I am walking in God's ways, and what is going on? And he fights in that song. He's honest with God, which is what God beckons us to. And you know how he finishes the song? How does it end? Nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Get this, and I'm gonna pray. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have given us all things. Let us be bold in our coming to you because you have given us Jesus who has blown the way wide open for any, any race, any socioeconomic class, any gender, it does not matter. It doesn't matter. We all stand condemned before you in ourselves, but in Christ, we have a way. We have a way maker. We have an atoning sacrifice. We have a righteous life, lived for us, died for us, risen. Lord, we charge ahead, jump in your lap in the name of Jesus Christ and call you Father. If anyone is not here today, if anyone is here today that is not taken that step and looked to Christ instead of all the other words being spoken around them, would they find you? Would they find the satisfaction in you? Would you, more importantly, find them, come to them and draw them to you with cords of love? His name is Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.